invite your attention in the scriptures to the 90th Psalm and verse 2. Psalm chapter 90 and verse 2. This will be the 23rd message in the series on the whole counsel of God. It will be the second on the subject of the eternal nature of God. Last Sunday, we dealt with the aspect of God dealing with his eternal nature. Today, we want to take some lessons from this. But we want to read the text in which that we're basing our thoughts in Psalm chapter 90 and verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Last Sunday in our study together from this text, we determined that the doctrine set forth in this verse of Scripture taught that our God was an eternal God and he was not a temporary God that has a beginning and has an ending. We also learn from it that God is omnipotent, he is all-present, and that in relation to him, the period of time in which we live here is so brief that we must deal with it accordingly. We learn that the oldest man that ever lived, named Methuselah, lived 969 years. And yet, as the fourth verse of the psalm reads, For a thousand years in thy sight are but yesterday, when it is past, and as a watch in the night. So that Methuselah did not even live in comparison to the eternal God even a single day. Now, having set forth the doctrine of this, we want to take now today three different aspects in which I think are scriptural. The Bible says in 2 Timothy that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for first doctrine. Then secondly, for reproof. Thirdly, for correction. And fourthly, for instruction. And so we want to take this verse of scripture this morning dealing with the eternal nature of God and having set forth the doctrine that God is an eternal God without beginning or ending, we want to now then look at this text and see how it would reprove in the light of God's word. How can this text, which sets forth that God is an eternal God, reprove us? Maybe there are those here today that need reproving, and we all do, because we're wayward children. That is, we run away from the things of God. We lose sight of his precepts and his commandments. How would this subject reprove us? In this particular way, the eternal nature of God reproves us when we as God's creatures would censor or question the actions of an eternal God. Do you ever find yourself doing that? Do you ever find things taking place in your life that you want to sit down and say, Now, wait a minute, God, if that was me, I would have done it a different way. Have you ever had something occur in your life that so upset your lifestyle that you had to say, I question why God did this or why God permitted this to occur? 
Now the very fact that God is an eternal God serves to reprove us when we would censor any of God's actions or question whether that he is right in bringing this to pass. I was talking with a lady here in the community a few weeks, uh, a few months ago, and she'd had her father pass away, and she said, well, now, I recognize that he was 70-something years old, and I don't question God in this. But about that same time in our community, we had the death, tragic death, of a young 16-year-old girl. But she said, the Pastor Gables, I sure question God's right to do that. Well, my friend, when tragedies occur, there is within the flesh an animosity to that springs up immediately that would say, Lord, why? Why? But let me I remind us, we are but a creature of time, and we are not to subject the actions of an eternal God to what we think should transpire in our life. No more than a one-day-old infant can comprehend why a world leader takes a certain course of action can we as creatures comprehend the wisdom of an eternal God and his eternal plan? And so this would reprove us when something occurs in our life that we would say, Lord, that just isn't right. No, we cannot charge God with doing wrong because he is an eternal God. He existed before this action ever came to pass in time, and he shall exist long after this action comes to pass, and he encompasses it all. So it does not catch him by surprise, but is but the fulfillment of his eternal decree laid before time ever began. So it would reprove us. Now then, let's go to the Bible and see if man has a right to question and censor the actions of an eternal God. I invite your attention now to the book of Job. I think after reading the Bible, if anyone had a right to say, Lord, what's going on, why this man would, wouldn't you? Let's read some of the events that occurred in Job's life. Job chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. Now, we won't read the previous verses, but this is the encounter between Satan and God himself, and God agreeing to permit Satan to lay his hand upon his servant Job to do whatever he desired with him, only he could not take his life. So beginning in verse 13, And there was a day when his sons and his daughters, speaking of Job's sons and daughters, were eating and drinking wine in their elder brother's house. And there came a messenger unto Job, and said, The oxen were plowing, and the asses feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them away. They they slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Now there went all of Job's equipment, if you want to say. There went his tractors, there went his cars, everything that he had to work with. His servants, his oxen, his asses are all taken. Now then, 
And while he was yet speaking, there came also another, and said, The fire of God is fallen from heaven, and hath burned up the sheep and the servants, and consumed them, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Now here goes his means of income. His sheep now are consumed. And verse 17, While he was yet speaking, there came also another, and said, The Chaldeans made out three bands, and fell upon the camels, and have carried them away. Yea, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Now here goes his means of disposing of his good. The camels and so forth, that would sell the, be the means of transporting his goods to market. And verse 18, And while he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness, and smote the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young men, and they are dead, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. The old adage is, when it rains, it pours. And here Job had one wave after another of adversity hit him. One circumstance that would have probably undermined most of our lives, but yet no sooner than that message was delivered than here would come another telegram, this has happened, and then another one. And finally, that which was most precious to Job, his own flesh and blood all taken from him. Now does natural man, the creature of God, have the right to then censor the actions of God and say, Lord, you've done wrong. It isn't right. All right, let's look how Job reacts. Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell upon the ground and worshipped. And said, Naked came I out of my mother's room, and naked I shall return thither. The Lord gave, the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this Job sinned not, now note, nor charged God foolishly. Nor charged God foolishly. How shall an infant charge an elder that his actions are wrong? And how shall a creature of time lay a charge against the eternal God that any of his actions are unwise and therefore he is wrong in doing them? In all of this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Now why? Because, my friend, Job had a view that before the mountains were ever laid, there was God. And that heaven and earth shall pass away, there shall still be God. And that the eternal wisdom and plan and mercy of God is not subjected unto a creature of time to get our approval as to whether or not it ought to be. Now look over in Job chapter 36. The same encounter is going on. Job chapter 36 and verse 23, we read these words, speaking of God, Who hath enjoined him, or who hath showed him his way? Or who can say, Thou hast wrought iniquity? That is, this statement is, Who can say, or show the Lord what he ought to do, or that can say to God, you have done wrong, you have wrought iniquity. Going on, when thou magnify his work which men behold, 
Every man may see it, man may behold it afar off. Behold, God is great, and we know him not, neither can we number of his years be searched out. Because God is eternal, because he encompasses all time, the great I am, then no creature has a right with charging God with doing wrong or working iniquity in the course of actions which he may pursue. Now, God is the eternal God, and he is over all. Now, turn to Job chapter 38 and verse 4. Here, God is now appearing to Job. And he asks Job the question, Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare, if thou hast understanding. All right, now you think that you know what I ought to do and what I ought not to do. Where were you when I created the foundations of the world? I could sure have used you then. If you think that your wisdom is superior to that of mine, then I could sure have used you when I created the heavens and the earth and those mountains which we read about in our text. Declare, if you know better than how I know as to how things ought to go and how a course of events should take, then you stand up and declare where you were when I laid out by my wisdom the foundations of the earth. No, it serves as a reproof to those of us that when our hearts would rise up and take over the throne of God by saying, Lord, this is the way it ought to be done and demanding that it be done that way or questioning a particular course of action which has come about in our life, then we undermine the great principle of Romans 8.28, which we say that we believe when we say that all things work together for what? For good, to them that love the Lord, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Now we'd ask ourselves this question, did those events in Job's life come about by accident, or did they come about according to the purpose of an all-wise eternal God? You have your choice there. And if you believe in the eternalness of God, then you have to say that when those individuals came and message after message came, and finally when it came and was told Job, your own children are dead, then Job would have to say, the Lord gave, the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord, I don't understand it, it's breaking the very nature of my heart, but yet I will not charge God. Even when later on Job would be sitting out there in the dust, covered from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet with boils, and his wife would come to him and say, Job, why don't you just curse God and die? Then even in that, Job would not charge God foolishly. Now many of us, have not yet been made partakers of some of these things which we're talking about. Some of you young people today, you may say, well, yes, Pastor, I believe all things work together for good, but my young person who listened, it's one thing to preach and teach that and believe that, and it's another one to take that same promise and stand by the grave of a mom and dad or a child and claim that promise then. 
in period of time are going to encounter this. And if you and I do not have a grasp on the eternal nature of God, that his wisdom was not formed in time, but it was before time ever began, then we'll not be able to stand in that day of trial. And we may find ourselves charging God foolishly with courses of action which come into our life. So may this text reprove us. Now the next thing about our text, what is there in it that may correct us? If the scripture is given for correction, then what is there in the eternal nature of God that can correct us in certain areas in which that we live? I invite your attention now to the book of Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1 in the New Testament. The eternal nature of God would correct those of us who would serve the creation more than the Creator. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. Now, it is encouraged, set your affection on things above, not on things here on the earth. Now, why not? Because heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall never pass away. Is it not sad to see those who would give their whole life to obtain something which soon disappears? Is it not sad to look out upon the mass of humanity serving the creature which is going to be corrupted, which is going to decay, which is going to pass away, and yet never serving the Creator? Now, I love the creation. I think it's a mark of God's handiwork, all that's around us. And God has given us all these things for our enjoyment. But when we make the creation the chief end of what we're serving, we're going to come up short because all of that's going to pass away. And we can see evidences of it. You go out and buy a new automobile. And oh, how you labor for that. And what it costs you. And yet by the time that it is, I think, arranged by the dealers, that just about the time you get the last payment made, it's time to get another one. Ready to decay, or already is decaying. Those funny little noises on the hood are starting to come up. And they don't come up until the last payment's made, usually. And then it's time to get another one. Decaying. All of it is decaying. You say, well, Pastor, I have my family, I have my wife and my children. I'll make the purpose of my existence in those. I'll love them, or I hope you will. I hope you will love your husband. I hope you will love your wife. But let me bring out a reality. That husband and that wife and those children are corrupting. They are decaying. And that will be taken away from you someday. Then what shall you have left? As the psalmist would cry out, Whom have I in heaven but thee? What do you enjoy most in this life? Do you not but see that when the next life to come, that will be taken away? 
Do you not see that the very essence of eternal punishment is but God separating this creature who will not love his creator, but love the creation, that God merely separates that creation from that person to where he finds no fulfillment? The person who loves money shall in eternity still have that love for money, but he will have nothing there to fulfill it. The person who loved to commit immorality and he gave himself over to uncleanness will still have that lust in eternity, but he'll have nothing of the creation to fulfill it. And this is the same with the person who loved drink, who loved to have that instead of God. Throughout all eternity, that lust will still be there, but there will not be a single drop of that which existed in the creation to fulfill it. Oh, ladies and gentlemen and young people, I would encourage you here this morning that if you are a thinking, rational being, which I believe you are, do not make the chief end of your life the creation, because the creation is going to pass, however beautiful that it may be. And then nothing will be left but the Creator Himself and the eternal state. May it correct us. Turn to the book of First John, chapter 2, and verse 15. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. You say, Pastor Gables, I don't care about the things of God, I, but I'll have to say I'm not guilty of adultery, I'm not guilty of murder. All I want is just a nice little cottage down here by the river in the meadow, and I don't want to bother anybody. I just want a peaceful life. That's all I ask out of my life. All right, is that your desire? My friend, that peaceful college is going to pass away also. You say, I may not be involved in the wickedness of this world, but what is your comfort in life? Is it in the eternal God and the Creator, or is it centered in something of His creation? If it is, the world is going to pass away, and the desire for that, but the will of God is going to abide forever. Center your affections in the eternal God. Then we've seen how this text can reprove us and that we should not censor or question the actions of God. We've seen how this can correct us from making the creation the chief end in our life. And now finally, what instruction would this text have for us? First, this text, setting forth the eternal nature of God, reveals to us that the gospel is not something new. Some have the idea that the gospel and Christianity began about 2,000 years ago. <laughs> that is not true. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not something new that God thought up or some man thought up after things began, after time began. The gospel is not something new, but it is something that originated 
in the mind of the eternal God before the foundations of the world were ever laid. Invite your attention to the book of Romans, chapter 16. Romans, chapter 16. Somebody comes to me ever so often and says, Pastor Gable, if I believe in the old-time religion, I do too, that which began before the foundation of the world. That's the only kind of religion. That which existed a hundred years ago, if it was rooted into that eternal gospel, it is the true religion. But if Grandma and Grandpa believed something which was not originated in the eternal mind and purposes of God, it was but a natural religion of man. In the book of Romans chapter 16, and beginning in verse 25, Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel, and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. And notice the gospel which Paul says he preaches is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it is a mystery which had been kept secret since the foundation of the world had been revealed only through the prophets and according to the commandment of the everlasting or eternal God. And if that gospel which is revealed is revealed in order that men might be obedient unto it. Do you realize, ladies and gentlemen, that the gospel is not something that has been thought of here at the last minute? The way it's preached today, the gospel is God sending an ambulance to an accident scene. You think about that for a moment. The gospel is not God's answer to an accident. Nothing occurs without purpose in God's universe. And when man fell, he fell freely, but he fell according to purpose. And God did not then have to say there in the garden, Oh my, look what's happened. Now everything's all messed up. And then he says, Well, now wait a minute. We've got to sit down and figure up something to get us out of this. No. Now look in Titus chapter 1. And you'll see that before there was ever a man created, the gospel had been promised. In the book of Titus, chapter 1 and verse 2, In hope of eternal life, which God, that cannot lie, promised before the world began. Before there was a world, there was a promise of everlasting life. And to those of you that are thinking along with me, I would ask you, who was there that God made this promise to? Were you there, Brother Powell? An actual purpose, and I mean an actual person, but now he had been born. But yet, God made a promise of everlasting life. And if there was no man there in actuality, to whom did God promise eternal life? You read your Bibles carefully, and you'll find there are only three persons God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And God the Father 
promised the Son that out of a race of fallen mankind he was going to have a people. And that in due time the Son said, Yes, and I shall come and redeem and give my life for those people. And the Holy Spirit said, And in due time I shall go and I shall call and reveal the, the grace of your Son to those people. And before there was ever a man, there was the eternal God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which had purposed that there would be a race of redeemed people that would be the bride of Jesus Christ. And that was a covenanted work. And it was promised. So what is occurring now in time is not God trying to patch up an accident but is but the fulfillment of an eternal, all-wise plan which was formed before time ever began. So the gospel is not anything new. That's why I preach the old-time religion, that which existed prior to time. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 1 and verse 4, we read something that thrills my heart every time that I go there. When I get low and I become discouraged in my life, I go and I see Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Well, how did I get in Christ? According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. That's how I got in Christ. That we should be holy without blame before him in love. Well, how did he do this, Pastor? Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. Why did he do this, Pastor? According to the good pleasure of his will. Not because I deserved it. Nothing I could have done to have deserved God's only Son. And if you are here this morning and you have reason to believe that you are of Jesus Christ and that you have been made partaker of his grace, you cannot stand before God and say, here is the reason why I'm a Christian, because of something I have done, because of something that I am. Because if that is true, then what determined that was something which took place in time. And that's not the gospel. The gospel is good news of something of the action of an eternal God. Now, here, as we bring this to a conclusion, the way the gospel is preached today is that it is an act of man which brings about salvation. But now, listen, the eternal gospel of Jesus Christ is God has performed purpose to perform an act in man and upon man to recreate man into the image of Jesus Christ. Therefore, what I stand to proclaim today is not something that you do to make yourself righteous with God, but it's something in the purpose of an eternal God which he took a course of action to do on your behalf. And that's the everlasting Gospel in Second Timothy chapter one and verse nine. We read these words. Second Timothy chapter one and verse nine. You ever wonder somebody 
asked me about a year ago, so Pastor, when were you saved? When were you uh, made alive with God? Now you listen carefully, you'll misunderstand me here. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel, according to the power of God, who hath saved us, past tense, and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own, now listen, purpose and grace. Well, when did he give that to me? which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. When when were you saved, Pastor? Well, I was called by the Holy Spirit when I was about 18 years old. And the Holy Spirit revealed to me the work of Jesus Christ. But I was saved by the blood of Christ some 2,000 years ago, and in the mind and purpose of God, I was conformed into his image before the foundation of the world ever began. So you want to ask when my salvation was? If I have an eternal salvation, my friend, it's rooted in an eternal God. It's not something which happens by accident. I did not stumble into salvation. I was made partaker of an eternal salvation which was planned for me in Christ Jesus. Now, if you really see that, that will give you some meat on your bones to see that the God which had you on his heart as the high priest had the names of the tribes of Israel on his breast and on his shoulders, when he went into that holy of holies to offer that sacrifice, he had the names of some people on his mind. And my friend, when you see that when Jesus Christ came and took upon himself the form of man, and he went to Golgotha's bride, my friend, he provided a redemption there which purchased a people. And there were some people on his breast and on his shoulders. And I'm thankful that my name was there. My name was there. And that Jesus Christ, before he went, the power knelt there in the garden and prayed for Jim Gables. And he said, I pray not for the world but for them which thou hast given me. And when he went over to Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world, and when he went there and he purchased that redemption, he purchased a full and complete redemption, and the only thing that remains for that which has been purchased is for the Holy Spirit of God to give an omnipotent calling and the beauty that's in the gospel. I ask you young people, you older people, middle-aged people this morning, has Christ been revealed to you in the gospel? Has he become such that you would forsake that which is temporary and embrace that which is eternal? Is he the lily of the valley too? Is he all in all? Remember, 
that he has chosen us in his own purpose and grace which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Now that he stands on the free offer of the gospel, says, Whosoever will, let him come. Let him come. Well, you say, Pastor Gables, that sounds like there's only a certain amount chosen then, and maybe I'm not one of those chosen, so I'm not going to come. Now, wait a minute. The only way you can ever know that Jesus Christ has done anything for you, and that is if you have come to him. And he offers you, come now, come even today. Make your calling and your election sure. You say, well, I don't want anything to do with Christ, and I don't want uh, anything to do with the gospel. Then you go your own way then. And if Jesus Christ has not done anything for you, then what's your right? Hmm? If you don't want to be saved, you don't want anything to do with the gospel, then why should it bother you that, that God has purpose? He's going to have a people for his son, Jesus Christ. But if you're here this morning as a sinner, and you take the role of a sinner, and you realize you have broken God's law, and you have a desire to obtain forgiveness in Jesus Christ, he stands with those nail-scarred hands wide open saying, Come, sinner, come. And if you find a desire to come, that's an evidence of the Holy Spirit of God revealing the work of Jesus Christ to you. So come today, come now, even now, and be made partakers of the calling which is in Christ Jesus, which is the eternal gospel of the grace of God. Shall we stand?